This is Dreamer to Creator, the podcast, with your hostess, Gabriella Bruner. This podcast was created to share stories of real people who dream and create. Their stories are inspiring. Their stories are resilient. Their stories are real. This podcast was Gabriella's dream, and she wants you to know that her dreams are possible, and so are yours. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Dreamer to Creator, the podcast. I was just chatting with our guest today, Meredith, and just really sharing how fascinated I've been with her story. And you're going to find out why. You'll, if you're a regular listener, you'll find out that I'm fascinated really with all of our guests. But the reason is because they each have this beautifully unique story, and it's off the beaten path, and it's about persistence and passion and doing what they love to do, even if it seems impossible or crazy or different. And I hope and I know and I trust that all of these stories, but Meredith in particular, will inspire you to just take that yearning that you've had to follow that dream and just do something about it. So I'm going to let Meredith tell you what it is that she does because I don't want to butcher it. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> Listen to me trying to make jokes. But this is Meredith Lee and she's just she's such an inspirational soul to me and she's a friend of my sister's and that's how I came to know her to begin with and then I've been following her journey on social media as we are so blessed to be able to do anymore. And I was just really honored that she agreed to come and talk to you guys today. So why don't you say hi, Meredith? And Hi, just... thanks for having me. You're so welcome. <laughs> it's funny. I, I think part of being a creative person is constantly asking yourself, what do you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I've, I've been going, I've been, I've been asking myself that question in a big way lately, you know, because I don't in any way want to limit myself. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so I think like, I love everything that you've already said, because you're talking about doing things off the beaten path and doing things that are unexpected, even if you don't expect them of yourself. Mm. And I think that that's absolutely spot on. So what I do currently, I have written a book, it's called the ethical meat handbook, complete home butchery, charcuterie and cooking for the conscious omnivore. Mm. And I have written a second book. So that book came out in November 2015. And I have another book coming out in late this year called Pure Charcuterie, Mm. which is the craft and poetry of curing meats at home. So we're talking about sausages and and salted hams and prosciutto and things like that. Delicious. Yeah. And and the way that I came into doing this work is, is, is interesting. I mean, I started out as a vegan. Wait, you just said you started out as a vegan? Yeah, I was a vegan sort of in the way that a lot of people come into veganism, I think just being really disillusioned with the way that like politically and economically and environmentally that our food is raised. And and like there's a lot of propaganda out there about meat and how horrible it is for the environment and how horrible it is for our health. And I think as a young person, it was very easy for me to access that that data, you know, and and I reacted to that in the most active way that I could, which was to abstain from eating meat myself. And I grew up in the city. You know, I grew up, I grew up uh, 
not able to really shape the way that my food got to my plate, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not really bought into the process either. But I moved to Asheville, North Carolina in just before the turn of the century. So 2000. I love how you say I, that, turn of the century. <laughs> well, that's like what it was. It was. It's just I right? haven't heard and, anybody and say like, it like I, that. Doesn't that sound, it sounds funny, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds like old times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyways, I... Um, so I moved here around 2000 and I started going to a college called Warren Wilson College, which is very much a land-based, work-based school. And I was in, I was in school for creative writing because I'd always had a passion for writing. Mm. But I sort of just, I became really disenchanted with the English program and, you know, words on a page and all the technicalities of, of creating literature and poetry. It felt just too mechanized. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Like, I just wanted to make art, right. you know what I mean? Like, I just wanted to make art. And it felt like a loss to me in this world of technicality. And and on the side, I had taken a job working in a school garden for a, a school for at-risk high school students. And man, I just started working in the soil and learning about organic agriculture and gardening and watching how it affected the students. And and just really being like, okay, this is real. You know, this is like, like sensory experiential reality. And it's some like, it's, it's, I'm directly affecting something. I'm, it's gratifying. I'm watching something change, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course, the more I began learning about it, the way that food is grown, the way that food is not grown, the way that it could be grown, the way that it should be grown, you know, and started learning about social justice issues around it and environmental issues around it, economic issues around it, I realized, wow, this is, if you're going to be a writer, you have to have something to write about, mm-hmm. you know, something really deep and like textured. And so this is like, this is my thing. Ever since I dug into the soil and, and I, I, yeah, have been on a track for the last, gosh, almost 20 years now wow. of just exploring the economic, environmental, social, political underpinnings of agriculture and food waste. And the first way that I figured to do that was by starting my own farm, Mm -hmm. which I did in 2003 with my now ex-husband and was growing mostly vegetables, again, because I wasn't eating meat and I didn't really see a place for it. But I did some traveling, some traveling around the world, visited some third world countries and rural areas and started really seeing a place for domesticated livestock in a full circle system of efficiency on a farm. And so came back, started eating meat actually in Vietnam, came back to North Carolina, incorporated animals onto our farm, realized that we were benefiting greatly from their fertility, Mm. but also that we were making a little bit more money off of the animals than we were off the vegetables. And as anybody who's a farmer, which I don't know how, what your listeners are, what their demographic is, but farming is an extremely difficult occupation. I'm learning that now that I live in... I think that the that you live in Illinois. Yeah, right? in central Illinois, exactly. I think it's a factoid I can share with you is that this, the average income of a farmer relative to the standard of living hasn't changed much over the last hundred years. Wow. So, yes, yeah, so it's, it's extremely difficult to to make a living and, and kind of the joke in alternative agriculture, which is sort of the way of agriculture that is developing in sort of a middle economy. Like it's not heavily industrialized. It's not your backyard garden, but it's, it's this effort towards a middle market, local food, 
community-based businesses and farms that support one another. Mm -hmm. But one of the jokes kind of in that scene is like, you know, don't quit your day job if you're going to start a farm. Like you're going to be farming and you're going to be working off the farm at the same time. So it's pretty exhausting. And a lot of my writing, a lot of my work has sprung from that, just that very thing that I see people who are really trying to change the face of where our food comes from ensuring that it's healthier for the environment, healthier for us and our children, healthier for the economy as a whole and for our communities. But but I see over the last 20 years of doing this that it's really breaking some people down mm. like t- to try and finance that emotionally and and financially. And so anyways, that was a bit of a tangent, but but like from the course of farming, I began specializing in meat production, pastured beef, pork and poultry and um realized that there were some system like supply chain inefficiencies that were leading to us not making very much money. So we decided to open our own butcher shop as well as having the farm. Wow. So I came into butchery sort of as like a business, like a necessity of of doing business. I was like, well, if I'm going to make money doing this thing that I poured so much money and heart into for years and years, then I'm going to have to skill up. And so, yeah, started learning butchery and, and honestly, like became really fascinated with it. It's, it's so fascinating like Mm -hmm. all the different things that go into making quality meat and quality fat and all the things that can be done with with the animal if you're valuing it in its entirety and there's so much artistry to it there's Mm. so much thrift to it there's so many there's so much integrity to doing it properly and also doing the work of educating people to understand it in a way that it's it's sort of been um it's sort of been cheapened yeah yeah by the, our culture and by the way that we expect food or feel entitled to cheap food or or all these other things and and so yeah that's kind of, that's kind of what I do and and I I guess I should say that I don't farm anymore for myself I sold my farm and I sold my half of the butcher shop it still exists but I'm no longer involved directly with retail butchery mm-hmm. And so what I do now is mostly I'm, I'm writing about it and I'm educating about it. I do a lot of traveling and I work part-time for a nonprofit farm called Living Web Farms mm. in Asheville, outside of Asheville, North Carolina, which is working on building and demonstrating systems of resiliency. So not just livestock production, not just meat and cooking, but vegetable production, alternative energy, natural medicine, all kinds of things. So that's what I do part-time. And then when I'm not there, I'm usually somewhere on an airplane flying somewhere to talk to people about real food, butchery, integrated farming systems, so raising animals as well as vegetables. How to get honest meat on your plate. Mm. How to understand meat as an integral part of your diet. Wow. I'm just, like, if I was fascinated before, I'm, like, even more fascinated now. And <laughs> it's, it really is. I mean, it's such an incredible thing. And, and what instantly comes to mind is the, the woman that I, whose episode will probably air right before yours is uh-huh. all about ethical fashion. And like the underlying principles are the same about how things have been cheapened and things have become fast sure. and you don't know where things come from. And so it's really interesting that we're getting these two similar yet different perspectives on on sort of just our world yeah. as it exists, you know, and sort well, of how yeah, fast I mean, it's gotten. One of the things that I have been fascinated by, I mean, I don't know, I kind of, I, I sort of had this moment when I was like pretty young where I was like, oh, I think the entire world is mostly BS, <laughs> you know, like, I, like I, I think I was like, I was tasked with doing a job. I think it was like on an internship or something. Uh-huh. And, and somebody was like, 
um, figure out a way to get people to like do X, Y, Z. And I was like, I'm, I can't make like, anybody do X, Y, Z. You know, but I started just sort of thinking about it. I mean, like, okay, well, if I make a form that they have to fill out and then they have to like do this or do this training or do something, then like I can steer people or, or a program or whatever towards this goal. Mm -hmm. And like, you think about like you, how many forms have you filled out in your life? When you think about it, somebody sat in front of a computer and just made it up, right? They just made it up. (laughs) I love that. They just made it up and I've made up forms myself. So I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Totally. But a lot of people haven't, a lot of people have not like built something from scratch Mm. or like made something up. And so they don't really get that. Like everything that you see around you is mostly just made up. Right. And, and, and that doesn't mean that it's automatically wrong, but it does mean that it was made up according to somebody, where someone was at at that moment and what they knew and what they were trying to accomplish. And I think like if you extrapolate that out and you think, okay, well, lots of things that we just take for granted or we think that they are the way they are because that that's fine and it works. Right. It might, it might help us to like take a step back and be like, well, let's look at this. Right. Let's look at this and see whether it still applies or whether it's evolving along with our culture, or whether it's evolving along with us as individuals. You know, and I think I had that moment, like at a pretty young age, interning for somebody. And it really affected me. Like I was like, oh, I can make up lots of things. Right. I can I change can, this too. <laughs> and I can start looking at things that have already been made up and say, okay, well, how can I make them better? Or how could I make them worse if I wasn't careful? Or, or you know, things like that. And it's funny, I, I had the first idea I had for a book was <laughs> to do something called like, everything that you everything that you think you know is like rigged. So <laughs> <laughs> the world is sort of rigged. Right. And, and if you can, and it wasn't meant to be negative, it was meant to be positive. Like, okay, if we could all like figure out a way of thinking and seeing that would allow us to sort of pierce through the layer that we have become so accustomed to, mm-hmm. then we'll be able to see things like see things for what's real and what isn't, and then decide, you know, so it's ultimately very empowering. And I think that that's where like, that's the fascination that you feel when you hear about ethical fashion, you hear about ethical food, you hear about ethical construction or building, mm-hmm. like there's an entry point in almost any industry you can think of where you could take that whole system and you could try to, you know, think about it holistically and say, oh, where, where are the opportunities? Where are the challenges here? You know, and that's really what ethical meat is about. It's like, let's look at the whole supply chain. Let's look at the life of the animal, the death of the animal, the way it's butchered and the way it's cooked all the way through and figure out what we need to do in order to make it to, to feel good about it. Right. <laughs> you know, to, to know that we're, to, to, that we're acting in integrity. When we're raising animals for food. Right. Which is, I mean, raising animals for food is part of our human evolution, right? And it's just somewhere along the line that got changed to a different way of doing things to accommodate for more and faster and quicker and all of that. And then it takes people like you who have this yearning to reflect and refine and do something a little bit different, do something that's a little bit uncomfortable, do something that's basically putting a dent in the normal way of doing things, which can be really hard. And so what kind of challenges did you find when you were starting this process, like literally going against the, if you will, established current? And and how did you keep going with that? Oh, man. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that raising animals for food isn't something that humans have always done. But it has been done for quite some time mm-hmm. now. And I think that even before humans were raising animals and domesticated animals, there were wild animals eating grass, running on 
a lot of the land. And if you take the United States alone, I mean, a huge portion of the Western rangelands evolved with bison and other herding animals mm -hmm. that moved in very large herds because of the pressure of vicious predators. And so mm -hmm. even if you're not just concerned with animals, you have to understand the impact that that then had on the evolution of plants. Mm -hmm. Because we eat both plants and animals, and even if we only eat plants, even if we choose a plant-based diet, we need to understand and respect the interconnectedness of the evolution of animals and plants together. And we need to seek an agriculture that integrates animals and plants together because that more naturally mimics our natural ecosystems. And you're right, at a certain point when we wanted to become more efficient, and mostly because it was in the interests of large corporations, right? Yeah, we intensified our agriculture, mm. started using lots of synthetic and chemical fertilizers and pesticides, which did increase crop yields incredibly and allow us to start exporting a lot more food and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, we're not... It, it didn't set us up for a healthy longevity in our agriculture. So right now we're looking at really heavily eroded soils. We're looking at injustices, food deserts. We're looking at a growing hunger problem, not a decreasing hunger problem. Mm. We're looking at waterways that are polluted. The list goes on. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible the impact that our pursuit for food has on Man, almost everything. <laughs> yeah. So it could, it could be really deep. And I think that for me, like, I kind of had spent time on both sides of the spectrum. Like, okay, at first I'm like this vegan kid who's <laughs> like, I understand. Like, meat is ruining the environment and it's ruining our health. And therefore, we should just quit full stop, you know? Yeah. And then I became a farmer. And I was like, oh, now I'm a farmer. And now I have this perspective about full system ecology and integrated ecology and but I, I know, like I know from looking at industrial feedlots and the way that animals are treated and the way that land is degraded because of them and the way that air quality is degraded because of them, like that's not right either. Right. And so for me, it was like, okay, how can I find a middle ground between these two polar opposites that neither one of them seem to be really working or catching on? And then how do, I, how do I settle into that middle ground in such a way that I can communicate it to people and meet them where they're at? And so that's really my ongoing challenge. I think that's the biggest challenge is that nobody wants to be shamed right. for the way that they eat and the way that they have to budget and the way that they live because it's like, man, it's hard enough to get through the day, right? <laughs> yeah. Everybody's working job, raising a kid, trying to keep the plants watered or whatever. And like... I'm not going to be effective at all if I get up on your podcast and tell everyone that they're doing everything wrong. Right. And so I think that, and, and, and anytime, and I believe that, or especially in our day and age, it's very hard to give people information. Because there's it's so much like, of it. There's so much of it. And also because I think that we've just become increasingly defensive yeah. as a culture. As it's like there's always somebody that is trying to shame us or is trying to argue then it, it's like extremely difficult to have a message of any kind and, and, and to be positive about it and to, to translate it with positivity. Mm. And I think that, that that's a huge challenge. I think another challenge is just the incredible amount of 
propaganda there is built around food and meat especially. It's like the media and the nutrition, the nutrition, what, what complex? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Is consistently interested in taking single ingredients and telling us how wonderful they are, how terrible they are. Mm. You know, you should eat less omega-3s and more omega-6s, or you should drink red wine for resveratrol, or no, you shouldn't drink red wine now because it's going to make you sick, or you should yes to this, now no to this, coffee's bad, coffee's good. Right, you know, it's incredibly confusingly vacillating, right? Yeah. And, and like, it's just, oh, it's just exhausting. And, and so I think that in a way, like we're set up to be on the defense. Mm. Because we're like, man, I just want to enjoy my enjoyable life. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things that became really clear to me with ethical meat is that, like, it's about eating less meat, eating better meat, knowing where it comes from, building community around where your food comes from, if you can, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, somehow that becomes more enjoyable. Mm. It's not about, it's certainly not about avoiding things. It's certainly not about like feeling shameful about anything. It's about eating a diverse diet, which as it turns out, we're getting more and more evidence that that is the most beneficial for your body, yeah. for your microbiome, right? We're learning so much about our gut flora and its importance to our overall health and digestion and immunity. And so, yeah, good news is a diverse diet is more supportive mm -hmm. of a healthy body. And so that's great. And that makes a lot of sense to me because as a, as a student of ecology for 20 years, I see that diversity is what's good for any ecosystem, mm. you know, and my body is also an ecosystem. So if I want to restore a stream or a riverbank or a farmland or a mountainside or my colon, probably the answer is going to be to populate that ecosystem with as many beneficial species as possible, mm. you know. And so that's been one really positive thing. And I think that it's just an ongoing, it's an ongoing work to, to just communicate effectively. I think that's the biggest thing. Mm. And to also feel reinvigorated by giving the same message over and over. Mm. I love you know, that I you touched that upon that. Yeah. Struggles. Yeah. And I think that there's always a tendency, I think, especially for people who create to keep moving you know, and that's very important. You want to keep moving and keep learning. But you also, if you want to communicate your message, you also have to be able to continue, right, saying A, B, and C, right. as well as learning D, E, and F, and on and on. And how have you and found so, do yourself doing that? How have you found yourself well, repeating the message so that it actually makes an impact without getting bored? Well, I think that I... I, I struggle with that. I certainly struggle with that because I'm a very restless person. And so I tend to get tired of myself no matter what I'm doing. And I want to move on and I want to learn something new. And that's really good. But I think that people forget why it matters, why X, Y, and Z matter if you're not, you're not sticking with A, B, and C again and again and again. And you're always having new people coming in with new interests. So mm -hmm. you have to keep refreshing, refreshing, which is just fascinating to me. That's something that I'm learning to do. I think I'm open myself to ways to do that. Because one of the things I d despise doing is selling myself. Mm -hmm. I despise the like social media, like I'm going to line up my posts for a week and I'm going <laughs> to, you know, 
design a picture that I think will be fitting with the holiday or whatever. Like I have a really hard time with that. Like I just want, like if I feel moved to share something, Uh then I want to share that. And that feels great to me. But what that translates to is that I'm not posting every day and I'm not necessarily repeating A, B, and C and things like that. So yeah, I, I don't claim to have an answer. I just know that it's important and need need to need to needs to gel. Right. A little bit more. Yeah. And I love that you said that because I, I'm the same I find myself being the same way. The selling myself piece, I I, I don't uh-huh. really know how to do that. And I struggle a lot with that too. Like how do you how do you blend sort of this the way that humans work, the way that humans work is that they need to hear or see something multiple times before it starts to like sink into their mind. Some people say seven, some people say 10, whatever the magic number is. And then balance that or blend that with the person delivering the message, wanting it to be authentic and wanting it to be inspired and not having everything, like another layer of like mechanical things being outputted at you all the time, you know? And I think, I think what ends up happening is that you end up growing more of a, like an organic following Absolutely. Right? This is my big solace. Like this is what I remind myself of every day. Like, and the other, the addendum to that is like, aside from not wanting to sell myself, like I don't ever want to be shoehorned mm. in my work. Like I don't want to shoehorn myself into like being meat girl forever. <laughs> you know, like I could, I, I could write a book about a radish, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like I can do whatever. Like I'm so, I'm so like in sync with like, this whole farming natural system, like wild food type of thing that I'm just like, why in the world would I compartmentalize myself? Mm. And so, and so that's another, like, if, if that's a goal, right. To, to be versatile in my creative life, then, then it also like you put that together with this authentic, this goal of authenticity. Then I think what what my solace is, is like, okay, this is a body of work that Mm -hmm. I'm building over time. And like, and there has to be a person behind that work, Mm -hmm. like that is enjoying life and living life out loud. And I think people really appreciate seeing that, you know what I mean? That, that you're more likely to be heard if you're just a bit messy or if you're just a bit human. Right. Or if you're like, I don't know, not so mechanical with your marketing. At least that's what I want to believe. <laughs> well, you know what? I believe that too. And the yeah. thing that I, that I have come to figure out as a business owner over the last year and a half, two years, like my own one woman shop kind of thing, is right. that you really have to put your goals in check. And what I mean by that is if, you're, if your heart is telling you this organic, authentic, you know, what, what we were just talking about, right? If that's where you, where you truly lie... You also have to understand that you may not, or you maybe you will, right? You may hit upon the right people, but the profitability side or the oh yeah, the making money side, because right, sometimes that's gonna that's gonna flow in different ways because you're building something that, like you oh. said, it's like a body of work. So you may Definitely. not build that million dollar business in a week if you're not able to. Not that you're not willing and not able to, what I'm saying is if it's not aligned with who you truly are, if you're forcing yourself to post every single day uh-huh. in new lives or do this or do that, do that, all of the things that are the quote proven formula to make you a, a billion dollars in a minute, it's, that's, that's going to be something that's going to make you want to quit before you even right. give yourself a chance to build your body of work. 
That's right. And part of me feels like if you're in, if you are, and, and I'm, this is probably not true all the way, but like, I don't think this is a billion dollar thing. You know, I just don't think it is. It's like a thing that I'm doing because I want to be useful in the world, mm. you know? And, and like, and so, yeah, it's not a fortune 500 that I'm building here. This is like a message that I just firmly believe in like deep, deep down. And, and some days I'm going to be tired of it. <laughs> and some days I'm going to be inspired about it, yeah. you know, because I think like another thing I've figured out is that I can't be on all the time. Right. I just can't like, and I can't create all the time. So, and this is like, I've studied the creative process a lot in other artists because I have struggled so much myself with like, just feeling uninspired or feeling like, oh my gosh, I have to keep going or, or, oh no, am I placing too much of my identity into what I create? You know, that kind of stuff. And it's fascinating to hear the things that other people do and require in order to create and the slumps that they suffer and, and these things, you know, and, and, and like, I just think it's really important for me to have periods of time where I'm looking inward and I'm also learning from others. I'm reading a lot. Mm. I'm observing a lot. And during those times, like, you know, you're just not going to hear from me. <laughs> and that's the way it is, yeah. you know, because, it, because I believe if like a good artist is always learning. And if you're not learning, then you will stop being creative. Mm -hmm. And so that's like, whew, you know, sometimes you wake up and you forget you're in that period and you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh my God, I've become so dull and I've not created anything and I've not connected with my audience or I've not you know, whatever saved the world today in some small way. And I just, I've, I'm constantly struck with this like charge of just being more patient with myself, you mm. know? Instead of accusing myself of not living imaginatively, realizing that I'm just lacking the patience to wait for all the things that I've imagined to unfold. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, so much sense. So yeah. much sense. And I actually wrote down a question as you were talking before, and I feel like this is the right time to, to ask. So in this world, right, everything's moving so fast. Everybody's telling you to do more, do more, do more. And your model in a lot of ways is, is slowing down. And oh, yeah. my question to you and to, to myself, I'd love to hear the answer from you, is, is slowing down able to yield enough? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I think so. I'm like in a huge place in my life where I, I think I can honestly say that I, I worked too much mm. when I was farming and when I, had my, when I first had my children, I have two boys, that I was just working far too hard. And it, and it made me an unhappy person. It made me an, a person who was hard to love. And I think that, like, I regret that. Mm. And, and you hear stories of people, like, when they get old and they say, I wish I had worked less. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I, a, that's actually, a big one. Yeah, and I think that, like, I went through, I went through a pretty intense personal tragedy that helped me realize that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of people don't, like, won't realize that for until it's maybe too late. But I was fortunate enough to have something come into my life that really broke me down, like in pretty much on every level. Mm -hmm. And I had to reinvent myself. And, and I realized like, Oh, you know what? I'm actually like, I'm not an, I'm not anxiety. I am not fear. I am not stress. I am not exhaustion. 
those are aberrations in this otherwise joyful, open, beautiful woman Mm. that I have to take care of. And so now I work much less and I struggle with feeling guilty about it sometimes when I see others around me working far too hard. But it's a constant reminder to just say like, no, you've chosen this. Right. You know, you've focused on this. This is, there's time for family. There's time for love. There's time for joy. There's time for goofiness. There's time for learning and inspiration. There's time for quiet, you know, and then there's also time for work. Yeah. And I think in my work on a day-to-day basis, if I move more slowly and I just let it unfold, it used to, it used to drive me nuts that people would stop and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk <laughs> on the job. You're like, we've got things to do, people, move it. (laughs) Oh, I am so that girl. I'm like, all right, well, why are we wasting so much time? Like, let's just get the job done because I'm a bit of a workhorse like that. And I, every day, have to sit in my meditation and just say, it's presence. You know, presence is what I affirm today. Like, I'm going to take it moment to moment. And I find that I do actually get probably the same amount and sometimes more done when I'm not stressing out about getting it done faster. Right. Right. I've noticed that about myself too. Yeah. And that's the thing too with butchery. Like it, that there's something about speed in all parts of the workplace and especially in food production because of efficiency and business goals and making money, you know, time is money, blah, blah, blah. The speed thing is like way overdone. Mm. It's like how, you know, and, and especially being a woman, like being a woman butcher, you know, I'm just not, I'm not as fast as a lot of my male peers at first, I was really intimidated about that. I was intimidated about how quick I was or how good I was. Or, and it's funny, like I just had to overcome that and just do it anyway. Mm. Um, and now I've come to see that like I don't even value that, that I was maybe like just in an industry that valued that. Right. And, and then I can, I can communicate that message to people and say, look, it's not about how fast you are. It's about doing it right. So if you're in a retail shop and you own a store, then you, you do need to start thinking about time and yield and things like that. But I think in general, if we take our eye off of the speed, then we'll gain in lots of other ways. Yeah. And I think that's such a challenging principle to apply to everyday life because you're basically going against what everybody's telling you to do. Yeah. Which is definitely, it's hard, you know? And so how do you, how do you keep going? I mean, how do you keep going when you Yeah, when you have like, in that particular instance, when you were intimidated by how quickly other people were doing things and that you weren't doing it that quickly, like, how did you look at that experience and say, I'm not going to let that stop me and kept going? Well, I mean, I think I think it's probably fair to say that there were times when I definitely let it get me down, Mm. you know, but, but I think it's like, again, it's like, I think I, I have always had an extreme ability or or tendency towards reflection and and analyzation like I'm an analytical person Mm -hmm. and so I'm constantly looking back at feelings that I had or events that I experienced or whatever and trying to weave them into some sort of bigger realizations about the world or bigger awareness about myself and I think what I realized is that when I went to a place when I got up on a stage and started like, what, performance butchery? What is this? Getting up on a stage in front of people and cutting up an animal? That's the strangest thing I could possibly imagine (laughs) myself doing with my life, but that's what I do. Yeah. And it's like, it's hard. It's hard to talk to people and cut with a sharp knife at the same time and try to do it effectively and try to do it quickly, you know? And I think that 
when I started doing it and I started realizing the way that people were, were relating to it, like they weren't judging me. Mm. They were like, you know, if I had gone up there and I had been really fast and I had been an asshole, then I probably would have looked back and not had a good experience. Yeah. But whenever I've gone into situations where I feel extremely intimidated, specifically in the butchery world as a, as a small woman who's uh, working with like bigger men mm -hmm. who are much more experienced than me, just coming to the table and being like, hey, I'm, a, like, I'm coming to the table with what I know and what I can do. And you're here at the table that you know and what you can do. You're just trying to come at it with humility yeah, and like with an openness to learning things. I always come away like feeling a smarter, better, and like really proud of myself. Mm. Like I've got, I've gotten nowhere. I've got, I've gained nothing in my life except for when I've done things that scared me. Mm. Wow. Like, I think I can confidently say that, that <sighs> the things I'm most proud of in my life are things that terrified me to death. And, and like, I was a child full of anxiety. I remember avoiding things as a child, avoiding experiences because I was afraid to do them. And I regret that now because as an adult, I found that in order to overcome that anxiety, I had to just do it anyway. Mm. And then when I did it, I was like, oh my gosh, that, that's the real me. That's the me that's the most alive. And so eventually it's become more habitual to just do things that scare me. Right. And you just practice it and you, you do a little bit more it. every day. And then it becomes a habit, yeah. you know, to seek out the wildest places that, you know, in your heart or in your practice or, or whatever, because nobody ever got anywhere by being scared all the time. Exactly. That just kind of stops you before you even get a chance to yeah. experience anything. Yeah. And I think as a female, that's a thing. Yeah, it is a like, thing. That's a big thing, especially in physical work like butchery. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you know, nobody pulls girls aside in youth to say, like, let me see you use your power. Mm. Like, let me see you kick that ball. Like, do you see the ball? Do you feel your leg? Do you feel your foot? Do you feel the ground? Do you feel your power? All right, use it. Wow. Here's how. You know what I mean? Like nobody does that with girls. No, they don't. And, and like, I think they do with boys. They do. For, in some way, there's some subliminal communication between men and Agreed. boys. That is like, and, and one of the things, and it's, it's when I started farming and working butchery, I noticed this. Like I'd be like, oh, I can't fix this thing or I can't make this go because I'm not strong enough. And I would like seek help of, from a man. And I would, I would watch them using so much more power mm. and force to to manipulate whatever they were doing without the timidity or the carefulness mm. that I was inherently bringing to the situation and I think that in a lot of ways that carefulness comes in handy sometimes that's you know that you grow up with as a girl but I think also like I have realized so much more power in my body and in my mind like mm. if I just make up my mind that I'm going to lift something or do something or fix something or manipulate something then I already have so much more power to do it. And that's just not a mindset that girls grow up with. No, they don't. I don't and I really, I really want to put that out there. I hope that starts to change. I think it is changing, but I still see it. I have a, a, a son and a daughter, and I do notice those things. And I try to be very mindful yeah. of allowing them both to become powerful human beings, whatever that means to them, you know? That's right. And realizing that it's a mind, it's a mind, it's a, it is a body thing, you know, like, you know, people say to me, oh, gosh, like, oh, I can't believe you can lift a, you know, 100 pound, 110 pound hog on your shoulder. And it's like, okay, well, that's because I've done it a lot. 
or I've been in situations where there was nobody else to do it but me and Mm -hmm. I had to do it, you know, and I became stronger. But also like if you, you know, put your mind to it, if you start out a project believing that you're going to complete it or that you can do it, then there's a much greater chance that you will than if you start out not believing in yourself and not thinking that it's possible. And I, I have children in my life. I have two boys of my own and my partner has two girls. And I already see the different ways that they approach physical tasks yeah, based on a mind, you know, just a difference in mindset, Mm. which is fascinating to me. It is fascinating. And like you said, I think it is needed to have different perspectives, but the idea is to not like stunt a a female's growth or power simply because she's a female. Nope. You know? That's Mm. right. That's right. I want to talk a little bit about the creation process of your books. So maybe the first thing that comes up is, did you feel differently writing the first book versus the second one? Or yes. Yeah. That's awesome that you asked that question. (laughs) The first book, like I didn't even picture myself writing a book about meat, but I was approached by the publisher and asked to do it. And Mm. I was like, at first I was like, I don't think I can do this. Like I'm not knowledgeable enough. I'm not experienced enough. I don't you know, I'm not a very good butcher. I don't blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, you know, I'm just going to do it anyway. Mm. And I was at a really pivotal point in my life where I was like facing a total flattening of my professional, what I had built professionally and my family. I, I went through a divorce, was severed from many of my friends and lost my farm. And, you know, it was just, just it a, was a total, lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? Because I have this knowledge and I have this passion and I don't want to just quit. And the book was like this incredible opportunity that was presented itself to me. And I, and it was like, how could I not do this? And so I did it and I felt like it really flowed. Like it came really easily to me. I would go, I would learn something. I would write it. I would tweak it. I was putting a lot of personal accounts into the book Mm -hmm. and they were just coming to me. I think because I was in a very raw place in my life, you know, Mm. it's just like, oh, I can think of like my personal connection to this animal or to this process or whatever. And so, yeah, it was, I was doing a lot of writing at that time in my life. I think I probably wrote like the equivalent of three or four books in that time. And one book was published and the rest of it just piled up on my computer somewhere. And (laughs) I have no idea if it'll ever amount to anything. And the second book because it was, it's a charcuterie book and some of the recipes in there are like two year recipes. Wow. It's like a ham that's salted and then it's aged and then it's hung and 18 months to two years before it's done. And so I was like trying to do the recipe and have photography that would show most of the entire process, even though, so having to coordinate that photography and staging those different parts of the recipes was such a huge task for me that I didn't actually sit down to write it until I think two months before it was due. Ooh, wow. And, oh, oh my gosh. I was stressing out. Oh my gosh. And I was like, but I don't want to stress out about this. I don't want to force it. So I just, it was such a different process. It was like a me asking myself for, to make this happen rather than it happening. Mm, yeah. One was- and it's to the point where when I sat down with the finished product of the second book, because I, I kind of write in pieces and then I put all the pieces together mm-hmm. and then I read it. And so when I sat down to read it, I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. 
Like, You're like <laughs> I just uh-oh. don't, <laughs> I just don't know about this, you know? And then I put the whole thing together and I loved it. Ooh. I loved it. And I was like, Oh, I, lo- I love this. I'm so excited about this. Like, yes. But that was cool to see that you can create using several different approaches and several different processes and still come out with a product that you love. Ah, That's really encouraging. That is so encouraging. Because I feel like a lot of times we, if, if something works the first time, you try to repeat that and then it doesn't feel as good as it did yeah. the first time. And so it's just really cool to be able to honor that and just say like, hey, I'm in a different place. I'm doing something different and I'm, that's right. I'm doing it the way that it works now. And that's, that's right. great. And you like, I think that for me, one of the things that I really, really want to do in my life is just to be easy. Mm. I want to be easy on people and I want to be easy on myself, Mm. you know, because it's just, man, when I fail to do that, it just messes everything up. I mess up relationships. I mess up my own self-image. And so I think that if you're going to be creative, shoehorning yourself into one type of process, which you hear about all the time, you hear artists that are like, oh, I have to be in this chair and I have to, you know, have this lighting on. And I'm like, that's fine if that works for you. But I think it's also important to just be open to, you know, you do have to create the space and time to make art, whatever your art is. But as long as you create that space and time, I think however it comes to you is like, just, you just have to welcome it, you know, and just be really easy on yourself and be really nice to your God. You have to be so nice to yourself. Yeah. If you want to get anything done in the world, <laughs> anything done that feels good. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Which is, I mean, why are we here if not to feel good? Why do we want to feel crappy all the time? That doesn't sound right. like fun to me. <laughs> and my, yeah, my whole thing is like the more I learn about nature and the more I learn about the world, the more I realize that we are just so small and unimportant. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, if my, if my only purpose is to host bacteria and process <laughs> oxygen, that's fine with me, but I am going to have a damn good time doing it. Yes. Like I, pl- I plan on having a good time. Ugh, yeah. That is so good. More celebration, <laughs> more fun, more ease as a metric of success. Like yeah. let it be easy. Let it be fun. I love that so much. So why don't we, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get information about these amazing books and just sure. learn more about you. Sure. So my website is Food. So that's M-E-R-E-L-E-I-G-H-F-O-O-D.com. Mm-hmm. And on that website, you can purchase both the Ethical Meat Handbook and Pure Charcuterie, which is on pre-order right mm. now. It won't be out till the fall. But also there, I, I have a blog and I have written about all kinds of things from butchery to raising sheep to going through a divorce to poetry about driving through Minnesota. I mean, whatever. <laughs> so... A lot of a lot of writing there, a lot of recipes and kitchen stuff there. So I love it when people go rove around in the website. I think there's a little bit of something for everybody. And then if you want to look, check out Living Web Farms, where I work, we mm-hmm. do year-round workshops on all kinds of sustainable agriculture and resilient living, from cooking to farming to alternative energy. And every workshop we do, we videotape it and we provide it for free. Oh my gosh. Online on our YouTube channel. So check out Living Web Farms. That's web like a spider's web. Livingwebfarms.org. And our YouTube channel is just Living Web Farms as well. So that's an incredible resource. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. That is, I love to hear that. I love it when I hear people creating and benefiting, you know, financially, I suppose, from that, but giving stuff away too, because that's another way to spread. Totally open source. That's another way to spread the message. 
Uh, yes, yeah. and then so on Instagram, on Instagram, I'm also at Merrily Food, and then on Twitter. So that's kind of a the books are both on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. You know, so mm, this is so I exciting. Love keeping in touch with people. Yeah, and I want to. One of the things that I've been when I remember, because honestly, sometimes I don't remember, is I love to ask the people that I'm talking to what what wisdom would you share with people about the creation process. What wisdom would I share with the creation process? It's, a, it's about your own creation process and sort of what you've learned over the years and, and just, you know, what comes to mind. I, I actually used to ask what advice, but I think I like the word wisdom better because it's more about what you've learned and then people may or may not take something away from it, but it, it's just beautiful to reflect on, on what your yes. own creation process has been. I mean, I think the wisdom that I've gained, I mean, we've talked about some of it already, just mm-hmm. like creating space. Like for me, I need, I need space, I need light, natural light, and I need privacy if I'm going to create, you know, so I got to mm. find, you got to find what you need. Yeah. And you have to create, you know, Joseph Campbell said to, to your bliss station. And so that is like, you know, a repeated creation and dedication to a space and situation that will allow you to find your voice, you know, find your inner inspiration. So I think that's essential. Um, and I think being patient with your imaginings and with yourself, like is an is a must, mm. you know, Paul, Paul Simon says that he generally creates a record, and then it's three or four years before he can create another one. Wow. And I remember that being so inspirational to me, because I was like, Oh, Thank goodness, you know, right? like, yeah, what a breath of fresh not, air. Yeah, if you're not feeling it for if you're not feeling it, and you're not feeling it, you know, you're either not making space for it, or it's just not time, right? In order for something to happen, it has to develop. So, you know, I like to think about the creative process and stages of creation and then fermentation, mm. right? So it's like, something's fermenting, I can feel it. It's not I can't articulate it yet. I don't know what's happening. But that is a, that allows me to be very forgiving of myself and very easy, which is the other wisdom that I have. It's just to just be so kind, figure out ways to be kind to yourself and take care of yourself because then you're going to create, you know, what you're truly meant to create. Mm. You're going to be in shape to do that. So much. Like, so I, I'm so excited to actually listen to this whole episode <laughs> like 150,000 times because there's so much here. And one of the pieces that I'm really picking up on is that sort of, something that you've learned is also discernment. It's like this oh, nuance. Such a good word. Right? Isn't that a great word? I've been oh. hearing it a lot lately. And this oh, man. beautifully nuanced way of just picking up on the subtleties of your life. And like, I love the fermentation um, metaphor or example, because it's like, you can feel it, you can feel it, but then you can also feel when it's ready to take to that mm-hmm. next step. And when you can bring right. that love and forgiveness and compassion that I can feel, I can discern that right now it's in that initial stage. It's not ready to go yet. Then you can let it go and let it ferment and let it right, right? sit in the cellar and salt for two years. <laughs> and right, then it right. will be ready. And I love that because I have experienced a lot of that myself where I try to force something for the sake of creating something in that moment. And then I end up not creating or not enjoying the creation process. Like I may get it done, but it may not be as enjoyable as right. I want it to be and like really learning. So yeah, discernment was the word that was really coming up for me. And I think also like, it's really important to understand that it's never, it is never um, a bad thing to ask for what you need. Mm. You know, I, I mean, it, 
assuming that what you need is reasonable, <laughs> you know, yeah. but like just what you need, like if you need more time, Ask. if you need, if you need space from your lover or if it, like even people, the people that you love the most, even if they don't understand what you need in order to what do whatever you're doing, forgive somebody, create something, whatever, like, yeah, you know, you have, you won't get it if you don't ask for it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that's, that's a, been a big lesson for me is just to like with love and with truth, just be like, this is what I need. Yeah. Mm. Works better that way. I agree. And it makes things a lot more fun and easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My dear, you are, gosh, what a gift. Seriously. You are a light on this earth. Thank you so much for oh, all of this. Thank you so much. I, like I said, I was so fascinated by your story before and now having this time to reflect with you and just see everything you've created and how you've reinvented yourself and how you take space and time and how you discern and how you ferment and how you do all it just ah, it makes me so excited I can't wait for for just just the rest of your story because it's it's so amazing so I'm going to keep following you Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Mm, it's been so wonderful. And thank you for what you're doing. Oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that. We just could say thank yeah. you over and over again, right? <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. I'm learning how to how to just say you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's important. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Meredith. And you guys, you need to go check her out. Her website is beautiful and there's just so much incredible content out there. So go ahead and get in touch with her. And if And you are still in Asheville, right? I am. Okay. So yep. then I have, a, I feel like in the foreseeable future, I'm going to take like a road trip of some kind and like visit all the podcast guests. Cause you guys have such incredible oh, stuff. That would, that would be, be awesome. So well, my mom lives in Raleigh, Durham. So she's yeah, not too far from, idea. from Asheville. So that would be so much fun. Thank you so much, Meredith. Cool. And Thank I look you. forward to continuing to follow your story and everybody else. We're going to, ha- we'll talk to you guys again soon. Bye. Thank you so much for being part of Gabriella's dream. You can learn more about Gabriella at thenewfirm.co. A special thank you to Hope Welty Library, Sally Mercedes in the A Year Ago Today podcast, Joshua Weeders, and each one of the guests. <laughs>